Omar, we are very happy to have the opportunity to speak with you for listeners who are not very familiar with the case. Um, first, let me say a couple of words that you are the Israel and Palestine director at Human Rights Watch, and you have been the subject of the first intelligence dossier on a human rights defender here. And we are uh, speaking with you for the second time on this matter now that it has developed a year after and it has actually called to attention a number of other uh, quite problematic things within this uh, same context. Uh, Omar, and I've known you for a long time now, uh, being a veteran of the uh, Center for Contemporary Arab Studies at Georgetown University, and you having been a master's student, and then I know you moved on to do your law degree at Stanford, and then uh, you took this job, and you've had other, from what I understand, run-ins with the freedom and democracy-loving government. And uh, we are very happy to have you here at um, Status Al-Wada. Before we uh, delve into a number of these matters and updates, we would love to hear a bit from you about your own background and maybe a snippet about how you got here and the kind of trouble that you have either encountered or caused uh, on the way. So first of all, ahla wa sahla in Ramallah in Palestine, Bassam. One of the things that's so difficult about the situation Palestinians have faced is so many Arab intellectuals aren't able to come and engage with Palestine. So it's really wonderful um, to see you here and uh, to continue these conversations that we've been having directly for many years now. So yeah, I've been working on human rights in the Middle East and um, in uh, the U.S. now going back uh, many years um, after graduating law school in 2013, I joined Human Rights Watch to cover Egypt um, in the aftermath of the coup, um, where I focused mostly on the mass killings of protesters, culminating in the, of course, uh, massacre in Rabah Square in August of 2013, um, which Human Rights Watch put out a pretty uh, significant 150-plus uh, page report documenting those killings, which led us to uh, get kicked out of Egypt. And, uh, you know, as you referenced, I've also had experiences being denied entry and or denied visas to Syria and Bahrain, among other places. But after leaving Egypt in 2014, releasing the report on the Rabah massacre, I worked for the Center for Constitutional Rights uh, for two years, where I primarily focused on representing two uh, Yemeni men who were detained by the United States in Guantanamo Bay. I also was part of the legal team representing Stephen Salaita, the professor who was fired from a tenured faculty position at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, over his criticism of Israel's bombardment of Gaza in 2014. And I worked on a case involving suspicionless surveillance of Muslim communities in the New York area. Um, I've been in this role as Human Rights Watch's Israel and Palestine director since October of 2016 due to some of the challenges, which we'll, we'll, we'll be discussing, I know, and I went into some depth with a year ago, over a year ago, actually, now on status. Um, it took me a while to actually take up my post on the ground here where I operate between Jerusalem and Ramallah covering human rights abuses by all authorities, including, of course, Israel, but the Palestinian Authority and Hamas as well. And I didn't move here until July 2017. So I've been on the ground now for about 13 months. Excellent. Or or not. <laughs> Thank you, Amar. We would like to address a number of issues with you, but given that this is a case that has developed into perhaps many other mini and major cases uncalled, as I shared, 
a number of more deep and entrenched problems. Let me just start by saying and reiterating that this is the first intelligence case that has been deployed vis-a-vis a human rights defender here, and it has caused and stirred a lot of controversy, including within the Israeli branches of government between, from what I understand, the Ministry of Interior on the one hand and the Foreign Ministry. But I'm sure there are many other details that would love for you to actually share and feel free to expand uh, onto other dimensions that uh, some of our listeners may not be aware of. And and, uh, frankly, I would love to be more clear on some of the details because there's so much that has been written about this and it's very difficult to discern uh, what makes sense and, and what is indeed factual. Thanks, Bassem. So let me actually start by backwards and then work our way forwards, because I think, you know, many have followed maybe the news the last few months, but in some ways there is a context that goes backwards. So maybe I'll start with a short sort of chronological account of where we got to where we were. So when I joined Human Rights Watch in 2016, we applied in July, actually several months before I joined, for a permit for Human Rights Watch to hire a foreign employee and for me to take up my post on the ground as Israel and Palestine director. The rest of our staff is is Palestinian and Israeli nationals. So we applied in July. That process was supposed to take uh, 60 days. We did not hear from them until February of 2017. So we're talking about eight months later. And in February of 2017, the Israeli government denied a work permit for Human Rights Watch. At the time, they denied Human Rights Watch the ability to hire any foreign employee. And their argument at the time was that Human Rights Watch was a propaganda arm for the Palestinians and was not a real human rights organization. Now, this story immediately picked up significant media interest, and within hours, in fact, the Israeli government began backtracking. And a week later, they um, allowed me to enter on a tourist visa, which I did do in March of 2017. I was actually on the airplane when the Israeli Knesset passed a law authorizing the Interior Ministry, in fact, mandated that they deny entry to those who express support for the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. But nonetheless, I was allowed in, actually with the foreign ministry waiting for me with a sign at the airport to make sure there were no difficulties. And in the subsequent weeks, they gave me a work permit. So on April 26, 2017, I received a one-year work permit to operate in-country. The very next day, an Israeli organization called Shurat Hadin filed a lawsuit in district court in Jerusalem, alleging that the Israeli government violated that law by allowing me, which who they termed to be a quintessential BDS activist, into the country and allowing Human Rights Watch, who they consider to be a BDS organization, boycott, divestment, and sanctions, into the country. Now, without getting into every sort of uh, back and forth, it culminated in, uh, we did not participate in this lawsuit. We were never formally notified of it. But in November of 2017, the Interior Ministry sent us a one-page letter notifying us that it was officially reopening my status in the country and that it had determined that I have been calling for boycotts of Israel, as they said, since I was a college student until this day. And they gave us 30 days to respond to this allegation before they made a decision on my status. We immediately 
asked for the information on which this determination was based, because how can we respond to a cursory allegation without any evidence? In response, in December, the government furnished us with the first intelligence dossier, as far as we're aware, that's ever been provided to a human rights defender, which is a seven-page document that goes through my activism dating back to when I was a student at Stanford. You know, things like petitions I've signed, speeches I've given, screenshots of student group websites, tweets, etc. Um, we responded to these allegations in January, and then we bring us up to today, which is that on May 7th of 2017, the Israeli government notified us that it was revoking Human Rights Watch's work permit and ordering me deported within 14 days. Um, the Interior Minister and the Strategic Affairs Minister put out a press release about an hour before Trump's Iran nuclear deal speech, hoping to bury the news, no saying that, in essence, um, they were going to do everything in their power to make sure I did not remain in the country. And in their November letter, there is an allegation that both HRW and myself were engaged in promoting boycotts, but their May 2018 decision focused squarely on me and my history, saying that I've been calling for boycotts uh, for many years and that that was the basis for my deportation order. We filed a lawsuit the next week challenging not only this decision, but actually the entire draconian law that this decision was based on, because the law marked the first time, actually, that the Israeli government has used this law to deport somebody with valid status in the country. So not only somebody who they've been denying scores of people, um, apparently based on this law, but to deport somebody with valid status in the country, who the government itself said in that May letter was not currently calling for boycotts. Their new position was that it was based on my activities before joining Human Rights Watch. The afternoon before I was supposed to be deported, the court gave us an injunction, freezing the enforcement of the deportation until, the, until it could hear the case. And so I am now here in the country solely based on an order from a court since my visa has been um, withdrawn. And we're currently in the midst of legal proceedings. In June, there was a hearing focused on the underlying substantive questions in the case. The interesting thing about this hearing is that it focused mostly on my social media po posts promoting Human Rights Watch's work around human rights abuses that corporations are involved in in settlements. So again, the argument shifted because it became really a referendum on the legitimacy of criticizing settlements and specifically business operations and settlements. We then received about two weeks ago, so now we're talking um, very end of July, a, a decision from the court, which was ordering the government to formally respond to our lawsuit, which in the Israeli legal system is an indication that our case is being taken seriously. And that's where we're at at this point, where the legal proceedings are ongoing. The case has generated significant um, press attention, significant concern from embassies, uh, Palestinian and Israeli human rights groups. But this fight is likely to drag on, not only in the courts, but really, frankly, um, in the court of public opinion. And it's increasingly become not only a case that speaks to the space for human rights defenders, human rights watch to operate, but really an entire referendum on the space for criticism and dissent in Israel. Again, we're with Alma Shek, Israel and Palestine Director for Human Rights Watch. Before I get to some of the implications, is there any connection between the way this case is developing 
and the new nation-state law, I mean, is it part of the same set of procedures, sentiments, developments that uh, we're likely to see more of in, in Israel, Israel-Palestine? I mean, absolutely. For many people, this case came as sort of a shock. Like Human Rights Watch, one of the world's largest human rights organizations, being deported from a country who claims to be the only democracy in the region. But in many ways, it was an aberration. It's entirely in keeping with not only increasing restrictions on uh, those that work on human rights, but really a reflection of the state of human rights in the country. So at the same time that Human Rights Watch has been ordered deported, we know many other prominent international rights activists have been denied entry into the country, including representatives of the United Nations, including a staff member at Amnesty International. It comes at the same time that Israeli human rights groups are being advocacy groups are being accused of slander and defaming the army and the state are, are being put under loads of uh, pressure. And of course, Palestinian rights defenders face the brunt of the assault. They, um, in many cases, can face arrest, criminal charges, death threats, really um, at the apex of where the pressure is happening. But it comes at a time, Bessam, where Israel is in, has now for 50 years... 50 years, half a century, been occupying um, the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza. And that's an occupation virtually defined by systematic rights abuse, by institutional entrenched discrimination, a two-tiered system that fundamentally treats Israelis and Palestinians separately and unequally in every possible aspect of everyday life. And, you know, it happens at the same time that Palestinians who live within Israel continue to face deeply entrenched discrimination, which the nation state law that you mentioned very much encapsulates. Right. This is a law that is making as a constitutional enshrined value the supremacy of one group over the other. Palestinians make up 20% of the population of Israel. And this law more or less you know, states as a matter of constitutional principle, which could have implications on a range of issues, that Jewish supremacy is a core, the core in many ways, value of the state. So Bassam, what you have today on the ground 13 million people who live between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean, about six and a half million Palestinian and about six and a half million Jewish Israeli. And you have fundamentally uh, entrenched system of discrimination that privileges those Jewish Israelis and that makes Palestinians live with an inferior basket of rights. And those rights vary to different degrees of inferiority based on whether you're a Palestinian citizen of Israel, whether you're a Palestinian resident in East Jerusalem, whether you're in area A, B, or C in the West Bank, or whether you're in Gaza, or whether you're a Palestinian refugee who now for generations have been living in refugee camps across the region while Israeli law permits a Jewish American or a Jewish European to move to Israel any day of the week. So essentially you have increasing clarity of what has been the guiding principle of um, the Israeli state for many years, which is demographic control and ensuring the control of Jews over Palestinians. To really wrap it up, it's not only that this Israeli government is increasingly trying to silence those that are critical of its rights record that are speaking out, you know, in recent days, we've seen Jewish Americans or Jewish Europeans and others facing lengthy interrogations at the border, but it's reflective of a state that feels emboldened and has utterly disregarded the most basic principles of the international system. 
So can we say we're also, especially with the nation state law, can we say that we are seeing the promulgation into law of what have been some sort of a de facto existence, for instance, the question of the tension between uh, having a, both a Jewish and a democratic state and things of the sort. Is this something that we are likely to see more of the codification into law of things that have been de facto the case, uh, whether it has to do with uh, identity, location of uh, residents, the settlements, and other sorts of situations and the status of the refugees? Or or is this simply a response to certain economic or, or political, of course, mainly political developments in Israel or even outside Israel? Could it be a function of the involvement that we may be seeing in reference to the Trump administration's uh, positions? Or is this just the norm? So I think increasingly, I mean, the debate on the Israeli side for a number of years now has been, and I think the best example really is the de facto annexation of the West Bank. It's a matter of how quickly to move to what clearly is the ultimate objective of this Israeli government, which is to have you know, full control over increasing parts of territory and, and, and supremacy of Jewish Israelis over Palestinians. And it's always been a tension between the really only two sides of the debate outside of sort of fringe, really brave activists on the Israeli side has been you know, do we do it really quickly and, you know, move in that direction? Or do we sort of slowly, you know, the one and a half state solution has, you know, some people have turned term Netanyahu's policy. So for, there are tons of laws in the last three years that have been passed in the Israeli Knesset that very slowly spread sort of formal Israeli sovereignty over settlements in the West Bank. You know, that, for example, the regularization law in February 2017, you know, a month um, into the Trump presidency, which allowed for the retroactive uh, legalization of settlements confiscated from private Palestinian land. So kind of the, the few obstacles that imposed some slowing down on Israel's expansionist policy, um, removing them. And I think certainly um, there is a sense among some in this Israeli government that this is the moment to sort of crystallize what they've been doing in the last you know, for, for decades now. So what does that mean? It means getting embassies to move to Jerusalem. It means liquidating the issue of, so, so basically saying Jerusalem is a done deal. It means, in effect, with the cuts to UNRWA and other, you know, reports about what's happening on refugees to sort of take that issue off the table. It means to effectively, it means to really take what have become facts on the ground and try to kind of establish that as de facto reality. You have discussions now in the U.S. about formally recognizing Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. I mean, the nation state law is one example of that, of them saying, you know what, this is basically how we've been operating things. Let's now enshrine this, whether in law, whether in constitutional principle, whether in uh, facts on the ground, and in their mind, insulate themselves for, for however. And part of it, of course, is, the, is what's happening in the Middle East. Right. Where you have leadership throughout the region that is much more concerned about other issues and is very willing to work with this Trump administration on issues like Iran, on, on issues like extremism between quotes and the Palestinian issue, which never really provided much of actual pressure coming from the Arab regimes. But whatever little you know, so superficiality that would might have come from Saudi Arabia or Egypt, much of that pretext is gone. The reality is Israel enjoys with most of the strong powers in the region, in some cases increasingly even becoming formal, but if not formal, then um, de facto deep 
connections and relationships with regimes throughout the region. I mean, you have suddenly dynamic where, you know, arguably the only state that's, you know, putting up some concern is Jordan um, over the issue of, you know, Jerusalem, given their ties there, but really throughout the region. So when you have the Trump administration, when you have the shifting politics of the Arab region and frankly, a global populist movement across the world that has positioned itself as in opposition to universal values, a rise and look at Europe and the increasing ties between between governments in Eastern Europe um, that um, are relatively right-wing and and Israel, even you know Russia, you know ties between Russia and Israel, it's quite clear that the confluence of geopolitical factors um, in the region is leading this Israeli government to feel quite emboldened. And you can link the nation-state law, even in some instances, the thought that they could deport Human Rights Watch, which you know more than being about Human Rights Watch was really a warning signal not only to domestic human rights organizations, um, but frankly, to many others that want to be critical. Um, You know, if they can deport Human Rights Watch, one of the world's largest human rights organizations, um, from here, what does it mean for everybody else? What does it mean even for, you know, foreigners who are married to Israelis are studying here who, you know, could say the wrong thing and suddenly be served with a dossier and be, be asked to be deported within 14 days? Omar, is there a window here beyond the um, regional and international dimensions you discussed? Is there a window that might close and therefore it's instigating this rapid movement, whether that window is related to the uh, Netanyahu government being in power or the uh, coming to power, I guess we should say, uh, of Trump? Is there a an immediate moment uh, that we could point to as a window that might be closed soon and this is, is pushing for, for these developments or is it just part of a, uh, an ongoing process? I think it's more, it's, it's hard. The window will close. I mean, this confluence of, you know, this particular coalition Israel, which is by far, I think, the most extreme in the history of the country of this U.S. administration, which I think is un, it's always been not beyond not an honest broker, but really provided a green light for, for many Israeli abuses. I think, you know, this Israeli government, this U.S. administration, this confluence of Arab politics throughout the Arab region is one where it's hard to, that window will, will shift and close at some point. Um, and there are signs of developments that are countercurrents to what's happening at the sort of top levels that I think the Israeli authorities are aware of. But for now, for, you know, for a long time, for example, under the Obama administration, uh, one of the arguments Netanyahu would make to push back against the more right wing parts of his coalition was, hey, I can't, you know, the U.S. will criticize us if we do that. And he can't, you know, say that or he might say, look, you know, the Arab region might do X or Y or Z. But increasingly, Increasingly, those arguments are going down. So I think there's a sense of urgency among some on the Israeli right to consolidate their wins while they can, knowing that that could change. But when will that window close? It's very difficult to know. I mean, again, there are currents that suggest that maybe things could shift, um, you know, starting with U.S. politics. The Israeli political scene is hard to imagine. Whenever the next elections come, even if Netanyahu's tenure as prime minister comes to an end, a government that has fundamentally different position on these issues. And it's, of course, difficult and, you know, uh, you know, best, best Sam to imagine in the short or even medium term changes in political orientations geopolitically of key powers in the Arab region. But I think there is, you know, a possibility, especially if you look at trends in, in the UK, for example, um, on, uh, you know, within the Labour Party or, you know, 
uh, look at what's happening now with Bernie Sanders and, you know, young and uh, progressive American Jews and Democrats. There are some signs that there could be a shift coming from parts of the international community, but um, it's hard to know when that might happen. And, and even to what extent the Israeli government is really considering the ramifications of these decisions, because ultimately they're, they are taking a cost. One of the reasons why the foreign ministry has opposed my deportation, I think there are still voices within the Israeli government that realize that many of these measures are ultimately counterproductive. But um, there is quite a sense of emboldened, emboldened nature that nothing is impossible of hubris in some ways among this Israeli government. And uh, that's sort of what's driving a lot of these decisions. Omar, thank you very much. I, I will close with the, with the last question about uh, this particular case with Human Rights Watch and with you regarding the potential scenarios that might develop based on the conclusion of this case. Uh, what sort of precedent might this set if things go one or another way? I mean, this case, for so many reasons, Bassam is, is I think, an, a bellwether. It's one of the reasons why our court hearing was packed and why I think people are very closely watching this case. Um, there's so many dynamics within the Israeli government that are really being tested. Um, in many cases, I think the Israeli government had hoped that the two weeks they'd give me, I'd be out of the country. They picked a time in which Iran, the Iran nuclear deal was coming up, the U.S. embassy move. You know, they made it about BDS, which in Israel is really a red line. And they thought that that would inhibit Israeli NGOs from coming out in support or Israeli journalists from covering the story. But they miscalculated ultimately. And ultimately, you know, the court issued an injunction. And now this is dragging on, continuing to be um, a source of a headache, I think, for those in power. So Bassem, I think, you know, right now we're waiting for a decision at the district court level. It's hard to predict what that decision might be. There are signs that are, you know, while, while we had a positive sign of this most recent decision, you know, the hearing, uh, I think, certainly created concern that the, the judge is might be inclined to rule against us. But in any scenario, however this goes, the losing party is likely to appeal to the Supreme Court, right? So in the court system, we, we might face a scenario where, you know, you're having a discussion about whether or not in Israel today it's possible to criticize um, settlements and business activity and settlements. And the implications are, are quite, you know, significant. If the Israeli government does succeed in deporting me, it would not only be the first time in Human Rights Watch's 30 years documenting rights abuses here that we've been barred from operating within Israel and the West Bank. It would also put Israel in the camp of countries like North Korea and, and Sudan and Cuba and Venezuela that have barred access for Human Rights Watch staff at a time in which we have offices and operate in in Lebanon, Jordan, and Tunisia, among other places um, in the world. You know, so I think it would be significant for Human Rights Watch. I think it would be a message sent to Israeli and Palestinian rights groups, you know, many of whom are under loads, enormous loads of pressure. Already there, there are many groups, especially on both sides, are facing funding crises. There's been a very coordinated Israeli effort to target the funding of rights groups and advocacy groups here. There's an indication that if this happens, it could shrink or even evaporate the space for rights groups to operate. And I think ultimately it will be an indication if they can get away with doing this, not only about you know whether or not you can be critical or dissent in Israel or Palestine today, 
but really the extent to which the entire matrix of you know human rights pressures and concerns has any re resonance, right? You know, you have a scenario which now they're kicking out someone who documents rights abuse, <laughs> right? And if they get away with that, you know, if all the international pressure can't stop an internationally recognized organization from doing their documentation work, what does it mean about the ability of international community to stop the underlying rights abuse? You know, what I will say, and uh, this is something I've learned, you know, referencing back to what, where we started the conversation about experiences, um, you know, getting denied entry in places like Bahrain and Egypt and Syria, is sort of what I'll end with, which is ultimately I believe that no country will succeed in hiding its rights abuses by expelling those who document them. Thank you, Omar. Uh, before we close, can you remind our listeners what does uh, BDS stands for? I, I always forget the last one. I know it's it's, it's bondage, uh, <laughs> disco, and and sahlab, is it or is is it charmut because of the sh? Both actually. You know, for them, it's one and the same thing. Sahlab actually, and yeah, exactly. Okay, I understand that you probably think that this last uh, bit should not be uh, included, but I think our listeners have a sense of humor. I mean, you know, if, if they're listening, if indeed this is actually if they're if they're followers of status and still have interest in the Middle East after all that's happening across the region, then you know they deserve a little humor at the end. So we will actually spell out the acronym in the in the text. Thank you very much, Omar, for this not just insightful but also frankly a holistic view because you go way beyond the local and regional context to frame this as, as something that is probably bigger than this case and, and even this particular context here locally and regionally. So that's really informative and we really would like to continue speaking with you as this develops and are very grateful for the efficiency with which you've delivered all of this. This was remarkable. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bassam. And thank you everyone for listening. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner? Email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com. To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com. <laughs>